Thank you, Peter, for leading us in worship. It certainly has been sweet to our souls. And um, actually, uh, there's one word that has been mentioned on numerous occasions in the theme that we're going to be speaking on today, and that is forgiveness. It's great to be forgiven, right? Even in human terms, it's great to be forgiven by another person. But how much greater it is to be forgiven by God. Let's open the scriptures to 2 Corinthians and we're going to be looking at chapter 2. We're going to be reading from verses 5 to 11. Short section today, but that's okay. We'll um, endeavour to deal with it as we uh, make our way through it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5. Follow along with me, please. But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to you all, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. But to the one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes." This is one of those sections of scripture that we kind of read through and it's difficult the way it's been translated into our English uh, to get our sort of minds around it, but uh, we have good translations here. And uh, so this is what we need to expository preach the word and, and just see what the Spirit of God would be saying uh, to us from this section this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to approach one of the clearest texts, I might say, in the Bible on the purpose and blessing that flows out of forgiveness. Forgiveness like sincerity that we spent a little bit of time on last week or the week before is generally, generally I say, a despised and ignored concept in our modern world. In its place, in its place, Things like vengeance, retaliation, even self-esteem or getting even, they are promoted as the heroic norms of successful living in our culture today. And as a result of that, our court systems are overloaded, families and marriages are shattered, communities and countries are painfully afflicted and law firms flourish. Sorry, Cobus. Primarily as a result, all this happens primarily as a result, generally speaking, of forgiveness being designated a weakness of character and not a strength. That's what happens. But this should not be so amongst us as believers. Amen? Amen. Biblical forgiveness should be a hallmark of genuine Christianity. 
Biblical forgiveness should be a hallmark of any true church of Jesus Christ. But is that really the case? Is it the case in your own personal life or in mine? That's a question we need to ask ourselves this morning. Because sad to say, as we look at the church at large, the professing church, it has a very lucid opinion on discipline. But on the other side of the coin, it fails miserably on biblical forgiveness and restoration. Again, I say generally speaking, that's the case in the church. And so far in 2 Corinthians, we have seen two hallmarks of biblical Christianity. From verses 1 to 11, you'll remember, we have seen how believers should handle stress and affliction and yet still, all the time, experience and know the comfort of God. That's what we looked at. That's the first hallmark. And then we came last time from verses 12 right through to verse 4 of chapter 2. We saw how believers should respond when they are misunderstood and even wrongfully judged. Apostle Paul was a model for us to follow in these things. But here in our text today, we have a third hallmark, I believe, of a biblical church. It will be a forgiving church that practices discipline only to bring about repentance, forgiveness and restored fellowship. That's what we have in our text today. Of course, when we think of forgiveness and about that word forgiveness and what is commonly attached to it in our modern society, we must understand it means a whole lot more than what the world has attached to its meaning. I honestly believe that the world and our culture even has hijacked what true forgiveness really means. They've hijacked it by employing words that we commonly use by saying, I apologize or I'm sorry. As a footnote here, when you have wronged someone or when it's been brought to your attention, don't just say, I'm sorry or I apologize. Learn to be a biblical Christian and search your own heart like we had the other week and then when repentance comes and where understanding has come that you may have offended, you go and ask the other person's forgiveness. That's a whole lot different. And so biblical forgiveness carries a whole lot more weight than what the world generally attaches to it and the reason is that forgiveness is rooted in the divine action of God in Christ towards sinners that we've already been speaking of this morning. Those who come to him in repentance and faith, God forgives. That's a wonderful truth, isn't it? Simple, right? No brainer, as I often say. What a joy it is to be forgiven by God. Are you? Paul had a right understanding of forgiveness because he saw that this was a, a foundational issue for Christian living. It wasn't only something that God had done, but he takes what God has done and applies it to his own life. And that's what all of us, including myself, need to do. He understood that forgiveness was foundational for Christian living because he knew with conviction that forgiveness flowed out of the very heart of God toward him personally in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what he understood. That's why he could say to his 
to his uh, fellow brothers and sisters in the church at Rome. This is what he says. And, And by the way, he quotes King David, who centuries before also understood what it was to be personally forgiven by God. He says this in Romans 4, 7, 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Awesome truth, right? Forgiven. Sin has been dealt with forever by God in Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that you'll be forgiven, folks. You can be as religious as you like. You can be as good as you can be. But forgiveness will not take place apart from this truth. It was also on this foundational gospel truth of forgiveness that Paul could exhort the Colossian believers on another occasion. And he exhorts us today. This is what he says as he moves from the forgiveness of God and applies it to his own life and applies it to us as believers. He said... Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Ephesians 4.32. There it is. I probably should stop right there and sit down. That's enough, okay? So forgiving one another in Christ is a Christ-centered truth. And every one of us are called it to put into practice. Why? Because we are forgiven people. Well, this is what Paul is calling the Corinthians in our text to do. What had happened here was that this unidentified person uh, referred to in verse 5 as any and again in verse 6 as such a one. He doesn't name him. This person seems to have added to his sin, to whatever it was, in some way insulting personally and public the Apostle Paul during his painful visit referred to in verse 1 of chapter 2. That's what seems to have gone down there. And so this man needs to be dealt with. Like you don't go and rail on and lie about an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? And dare I might say, you don't go and rail on and lie and denigrate any saint of God. Well, the church followed Paul's instruction on the matter of discipline and they put him out of fellowship as was appropriate for the sin that he committed. They excommunicate him, shows us something of the seriousness of the matter. And in the, in the mix of all this, as you just gather your minds around a bigger context, if you go right back to 1 Corinthians, you see there were little groups in this church. I have Paul, I have Peter, I have Apollos, Remember? There was divisions. And so no doubt those who were eye of Paul really got upset at this. Really got upset. Their pride was hurt. Uh, Their famous apostle was denigrated before them publicly. And so more than likely this group wanted a good deal more penance time from this offender, so to speak. But the thing is, this person had now genuinely repented. As we see, what did Paul do? He forgave him. So now Paul urges the Corinthians to do the same. Again, simple, right? They were super quick on the discipline side of things, um, but they were real slow in the forgiving department. I wonder if that rings any bells with us. Even after 
repentance or discipline had done its work and brought about genuine repentance in this man. They were slow to pick up on this. So what can we learn from this? In this text, what I'm going to do this morning is look at four principles on biblical forgiveness that we can learn again from the apostles' example. And the first principle is biblical forgiveness practices humility and mercy. And we see this is in verse 5 and 6. As I said before, we're given a very few details on who the person was who had caused sorrow, as described in our text. And some would even say, some commentators and theologians would say, oh, this is the guy who had committed incest back in 1 Corinthians 5. But that is not clearly stated. It may have been, it may have been someone else. But whoever it was is irrelevant at this point because... The church had carried out its disciplinary action. They had barred him from fellowship and rightly done so. But now genuine repentance was evident in this man. The discipline of the church had done its work. So now what do they do? This is where, like like the Corinthians, many believers today kind of come unstuck. Paul here, by his statement, he says... If any has caused sorrow, what he means by that, he assumes and acknowledges that real sorrow was the adverse effect from this man's transgression. He's not denying that. There was real pain and, and hurtfulness among the assembly of God's people caused by this offender. He doesn't deny that. Now, being lied about and being slandered or spoken ill of always has some kind of fallout, right? It really hurts, it does. The old saying, sticks and stones will break my bones but names will never hurt me, just ain't true. It ain't true. Because insult and lies and offences do hurt. They can cut deep. Paul doesn't deny that. He acknowledges that they had been really hurt. But it's how we respond, folks. It's how we respond to the hurt that is vitally important here. Among believers, it should never be hate or jealousy or spite or indifference. Among believers, sin in the camp, yes, it should cause sorrow. But sorrow for what? This is the question here. Sorrow for what? Can I suggest that it should be cause a sorrow in that sin has interrupted the unity and fellowship that God desires and commands to be among his people? That should be number one of the sorrow. Sorrow because sin has marred the testimony of the saints. And running alongside of that, like King David, what did he see when he was confronted with his sin? Lord, I have sinned against you. But is that how being wronged by someone really goes down? Paul here tells us how it should be. Because something else was being displayed by the Corinthians. There was a spirit of pride overwhelming them. You see, to forgive someone who has wronged you requires humility. It does, it really does. Too often, rather than humility though, being the response to an offensive action or something that has been said against you, what we resort to is self-preservation. I know all about this. I'm guilty. I have been guilty. Well, some even go as far as having a pity party. And most common, 
We retaliate. After all, it's our ego that's been punctured big time, right? Paul displays none of these selfish actions. None of them. His was one of humility. As a matter of fact, what Paul does here in this text, he kind of neutralizes, he downplays this past offensive action. He downplays it towards himself. He refuses to take it personally. Now that takes some doing, doesn't it? Paul refuses to take it personally. And for the sake of the Corinthians, he hardly mentions it at all. He doesn't rake up old stuff that was happened some time back. He doesn't incite unnecessary sorrow. So Paul rates the sin, the transgression of this offending brother delicately and now it barely reads on his radar. Now that is strength in action, not weakness. That is humility. Pride goes out the door, humility rules and Paul wants the Corinthians to respond in the same way. And so what Paul did was he, he, he rose above the personal hurt Yes, he was hurt. He was railed against. He rose above that and he forgave the offender. He refused to see himself as a victim in all this. He refused to allow pride and bitterness to wreak havoc in his mind. He refused that. I'm not going to have any of that, he said. Paul wanted the believers in Corinth to do the same. He wanted them to move on. He wanted them, like himself, to display the forgiveness that Jesus spoke of in response to Peter's question. You know, when Peter asked, Lord, I've forgiven this man seven times. What's the deal? And he says in Matthew 18, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 77 times. What humility. It takes some strength to go down that trail, right? Paul was also demonstrating that the same forgiveness as Joseph. Remember Joseph in Genesis? The dude that got really a bad deal from his brothers? Prisoned, treated like a slave. Then God was in the deal, raised him to be ruler over land. But then it came about for his brothers and the providence of God and the sovereignty of God to meet Joseph. And Joseph... He put in measures, I believe, to make sure that these guys were truly repentant and there was a humble attitude on their part. And and Joseph, though, he forgave them for their evil intentions and their past actions. He forgave them. He he refused to allow their sin to embitter himself toward his brothers, toward them. He did the exact opposite. Matter of fact, he then showed mercy, which we also have mentioned in our text today. He showed mercy toward these undeserving brothers. Well, how did he do that? By pouring out love on them abundantly and he restored a family relationship. Now, folks, that's something of biblical forgiveness. That's what some of the Corinthian believers were kind of holding back on. When discipline is served, mercy is integral for biblical forgiveness. You see, getting their pound of flesh for the sorrow this sinner had caused was more justifying, was more satisfying, and it was more just in their books. That's how they looked at it, or some of them did it anyway. And so they immediately meted out the punishment, the discipline side of it. Oh yeah, they did that. But they lost sight of the redemptive goal of the disciplinary process. 
Paul says, this is what Paul says to them, sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. In other words, the correct discipline you carried out by the assembly has done its work, the brother is now repentant, so show mercy and restore him to full fellowship among you as before. That's what he's saying here. Discipline has done its work. It's brought about repentance. Folks, Paul exhorted the Ephesian believers to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as Christ has forgiven you. We've mentioned that back in 432. Is that the kind of forgiveness you practice? Is that the kind of forgiveness I practice? Forgiveness modelled after God's forgiveness of you. That's how it should be. Forgiveness that is rooted in humility and mercy is the forgiveness that we need to be cultivating. Second principle is biblical forgiveness restores joy with love. We see this in verses 7 to 8. Forgive me for using myself as an illustration here, but um, I vividly remember when I was a youth, and that's some time ago, back in the age of dinosaurs, that I disappointed and grievously, grievously hurt my dad. Some of you have probably been there. See one of these smiles. I stepped over a boundary that earned some serious stay-at-home grounding time that lasted for some months. He was deeply hurt. My mother was sorely disappointed and I was not a happy chappy. I knew my offence was wrong, I was foolish, but most of all, I was gutted because I saw how it grieved my dad. For weeks, there was no joy in my life. I felt the bitter taste of how offence had caused sorrow in the family, especially to dad. I belonged to his family, I knew that, but I deeply felt the miserable loneliness of being on the outer and, and painfully missing the joyful fellowship that I once had. I felt, felt that deeply. No joy, no peace. I was uncomfortably out of sorts with myself and my dad, who I personally offended. I grieved him, I caused him sorrow. And so it got to a stage where I just could not bear it anymore. And so I said in my youthful way, uh, this is not verbatim, but I remember talking to him, and, and I said, Dad, I'm, I'm real sorry, using that word in my youthfulness, about what I had done. And I says, I will not abuse his trust ever again. I repented. So what did my dad do? Some of the Corinthians would have said, Stew in your juice a little bit longer, boy. Because you really hurt us and we want you to pay your due a bit longer yet. My dad said and said something to me on that occasion, something that I did not deserve. First he thanked me for approaching the subject. It was only right that I do that. And then he told me that he'd already forgiven me. On that day, I came to understand and know that I was no longer under the condemnation of my father. I was free. I was forgiven. The joy that flooded over my young life on that occasion was tremendous. It was like a burden that was lifted. My joy of family fellowship was restored. I was the chatterbox around the table once again. 
I was back. I had returned. That man restored my joy and affirmed his love even though I caused him sorrow and grief. Let's just apply this to the gospel for a moment, okay? Folks, how much more important it is to know that you are no longer under God's condemnation for your sin against him, but rather forgiven. Because as has already been said here this morning, every single person born into this world is under the condemnation of God. Now that may sound harsh, but we are born with a sin nature because of Adam's sin. And you can do what you like. You can be as religious as you like. You can go to church as many times as you like. You can read your Bible as much as you like. You can pray as much as you like. You can do whatever in any religious circumstances, but it will not give you, bring to you forgiveness from God. Romans 8 verse 1 tells of the joy of the believer who has been forgiven. There is now no condemnation for those who are, listen to this, in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ? Because if you are, you're forgiven and you can rejoice. But if you're not, if you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you're outside of Christ and you're not forgiven. It is only by God's grace through personal faith in in Jesus Christ and His sin-bearing sacrifice at Calvary, it's only through Him and His work can you be forgiven. It's the only way. I want to be very clear on that. You've heard it before, but I'm going to keep telling you. It's only on being forgiven can any person know the true joy and love that God the Father gives freely to those who believe. Folks, this is where biblical forgiveness springs from. This is where it's all about, like we mentioned at the beginning of our message. Some of the Corinthians were more intent on the offender doing additional penance time than they were of humbly and mercifully forgiving to restore joy through their love. That was off their radar by some of them. Just imagine if that was the basis of God's forgiveness of our sin against him. You know what? Every single one of us would be on that broad road into hell right here at present but he hasn't to forgive and comfort as Paul was urging them here was slow in coming this lonely hurting and now repentant brother what he needed was comfort you see that word there comfort and as we talked about last week they needed it means strengthening being held up being nurtured that's what he needed. They needed to, those to come alongside him, put their arm around him, and spiritually encourage and nurture him. That's what this word means. Not to be left outside to soul-destroying excessive sorrow. It was time for them to step up, forget their prideful, selfish agendas. It was time for them to restore the joy, bring him back into the family, and pour out their love on him. They were to replace their excessive sorrow. There's a bit of play on words here in the Greek. We have excessive sorrow and, to, and their love. It's excessive sorrow without a counteract that with just loving on them. That's what they were to do. It was time for them to step up and do that. It was time for them to forgive. A third principle is that biblical forgiveness is obedience and action. We see this in verses 9 and 10. You see, when we forgive... 
We have seen how humility and mercy and joy and love, they are essential ingredients to the practice of genuine forgiveness. We've seen that. But there is one more test involved in forgiving a repentant brother or a sister that Paul mentions here. You see, Paul wrote in his severe letter, somewhere between when he wrote 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you know, that's one of the four letters that he wrote, two we haven't got on record, He wrote in a severe letter, giving instructions about the need of discipline, but also the need to forgive when the discipline had brought about genuine repentance. He told them that. And as we have discussed, the Corinthians gladly obeyed the first part, but Paul was really concerned they might be too slow in obeying the second. And some of them were definitely slow there. So this instruction to forgive was equally important as the instruction to discipline. You get the drift? So, it says here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, what did he do? He he put them to the test, the apostles of He put them to the test. This is what it says. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. In other words, will they obey all things or just some things? That was a test here. Will they pick and choose what they want to obey? Now bear with me, let's digress here a little for the sake of application, okay? I don't need to remind you that we are also tested every single time we're exposed to the Word of God, just like this morning when you open it up and read it yourself, when you hear it preached and when you meditate on it. Every time that we're exposed to the Word of God, like the Corinthians, we're put to the test. You can't be indifferent. You can't sit on the fence. Most of us obey it, by the way. After all, we don't kill people, so thou shalt not kill. We don't steal, thou shalt not steal. We don't commit adultery, we, don't, we love our spouses. Uh, we might even give generously like the Scriptures are exhorted. So we can go through a whole lot of Scripture and say, yep, 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 I do all that. But the Lord wants more than that, folks. Sorry. He wants more than that. You see, He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. He wants us to love Him with all our hearts, all our minds and souls and strength. We have that in Matthew 12.30. We may think that what we do is of more value than how and in what spirit we do them for the Lord. But that is not so. That is not so. God said through His prophet Samuel, remember in 1 Samuel 15.22, well-known text, has God, here's the question, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? In other words, has the Lord as much delight in all your religious ceremonies as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Question mark. Here's the answer. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. In other words, you can be a good, regular, church-going person, but all that means nothing to God and is mere religious ceremony if it is not done from a humble, obedient and a contrite heart of faith. Jesus preached a command to be obeyed. First message that recorded when Jesus after he was baptised, what did he go out and preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It wasn't an invite, by the way. It wasn't saying, oh, come to me if you really feel Aiden. Come to me, come to me. I'm a good guy. No, no. He commanded them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is the hand. And uh, that was to be obeyed. And the gospel's to be obeyed. There's heaps of things in scriptures to be obeyed, even as believers. 
Are you obedient? Am I obedient in all things? Or do we go about our religious ways according to how we want and we pick and choose whatever suits? Have you been, first of all, obedient to the gospel? Have you acknowledged personally your sin before God and obeyed the gospel by trusting in God's Son as your sin bearer? You know, that's the primary obedience test before you even consider any of the others. You try and do the others first and leave this one out, you're lost. You're just a religious hypocrite. You're a Pharisee. Well, as we see here, Paul was obedient to what God, to God and his forgiveness. He was. And you know what? So were the Corinthians. So was this church. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So were the Corinthians, as we will see later on in this epistle. Chapter 7, verses 12, 15. Titus brought him news of what was happening in Corinth and he was able to tell them that, um, that they had repented and there was, it was a restoration of the brother and it rejoiced him. They were obedient in the discipline, which sad to say, by the way, is disobediently ignored by many churches in our day. Many churches, when matters come to a situation where church discipline is required, they just bury their head in their sand. We're exhorted to carry out church discipline here, and we do. Sadly to say, we've had to in the past. What they were also obedient is forgiving and restoring. So we praise God that the Corinthians did come to the party in the end, can we say. And so Paul stood with this church. He stood with this church on the discipline they meted out and now he wants to stand with them before the presence of Christ in their collective obedience of forgiveness. You see, the Corinthian church passed both tests, discipline and forgiveness. They understood that the goal of discipline is forgiveness. Always remember a brother who with anger, frustration and tears in his eyes saying in my presence, I just cannot forgive him. This man was deeply hurt over a family relationship that went terribly wrong as far as he was concerned, but instead of heeding the counsel of others and to obey the word of God, he allowed Satan to tear him up. There was not a longing for this forgiveness and for repentance, forgiveness to take place, but one of vengeance, one of even hatred and nasty things like that. And he says, I just cannot forgive him. This brings us to our last principle. Biblical forgiveness prevents Satan having his way. It says here in our text, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. I believe there are two main Warnings implied in this last verse of our reading this morning. Firstly, Satan loves it. He really loves it when churches and individuals either refuse or do not know how to discipline as God has instructed. He loves that. If we see discipline purely as a a means to get even or to punish someone rather than to lovingly correct so that repentance and forgiveness can take place, what it does, it can result in Satan gaining a foothold in the life of that person who is under discipline. It really can. And so what happens is is that if they become overwhelmed with excessive sorrow, like this person was in danger of in our text, that kind of discipline, if it's carried out with no forgiveness in mind, what it can do, it can wreck the person's spirit and drive them from the community of God's people never to be seen again. That's what it can do. 
Folks, Satan loves that kind of discipline where it results in the kind of outcome. Might I say, not only in the church, but even in the home. I honestly believe in tough love for parents who are bringing up children. How often I've been reminded of it. I go to the supermarket and I see a mother with a screaming child who's just trying to tantrum because yesterday, yesterday because it was taken off a rocking horse. I said, Velma, I said, you know what I would be doing and would do to that child as soon as that child got home or out of the observance of the people. He said, yeah, I know, you did. Because we had very, very little screaming tantrums. We must discipline in the home and also we must discipline in the church so that restoration and love and joy and fellowship may be the outcome. And secondly, there's another warning here and that's for the congregation, I believe, for the church as as, as a whole. We dare not be ignorant of Satan's schemes, right? As a matter of fact, we are called in Ephesians 6 and 11, it says here, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And again in verse 27, we're not to give the devil an opportunity. Two warnings same, in the same book. Satan loves it when we fail to discipline and also fail to give. He really does. He loves it. He also loves it when churches are missing members because of legalistic, harsh, unforgiving attitudes that hold sway. He really loves that. May it never be in our church. Amen. Forgiveness affects the one who forgives and also the one who is forgiven and also the entire church. It does. God's desire is that the local church might be a place where his people practice forgiveness his way. Where humility, mercy, joy, love and obedience are the ingredients of it. Otherwise, you know what will happen? Satan is given a foothold where he has no right of entry. May we understand that The hard work of carrying out discipline and then forgiving and restoring those who repent is the test, listen to this, of our love and obedience to the Lord. That's what it comes down to. If you love the Lord, you will obey him. I trust we were all tested with this message this morning and challenged to forgive and restore. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we do bow before you this morning. And rather a difficult passage. But Lord, I just pray that the thread, the intent of the Apostles' writing has been made clear this morning. Father, we all have people in our lives who hurt us and even some collectively as a church. So may we learn from the Scriptures and obey the Scriptures in the correct discipline. Sometimes... It can be done in a private manner and it calls for us to do that. A word in an ear to a brother or a sister of warning. Sometimes it has to even go further. But Lord, teach us at all times to see that we are to be merciful and gracious and we'd be kind and loving and wanting joy and restored relationship. So Father, help us in this we pray. Take us to arms in safety and the people of God said, Amen.